Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Last week, we looked at Psalm 23. And there in that psalm, we saw that as weak as we are, because the Lord is our shepherd, we lack nothing. We see the way in which faith stands us tall in the world. But we're going to see the contrast of that this morning. We're looking at Psalm 51, and Psalm 51, in essence, is about repentance. It's about getting down low before God. And this is important for us as a church to think about because a church without faith, uh, sorry, a church with faith but without repentance can be smug. A church can be right about doctrine. They can tick all the boxes, but there can be this air of superiority, of self-righteousness that pervades instead of grace and compassion. And the opposite of that is true also. A church without repentance... Sorry, a church with repentance but no faith can become cowardly, masking itself with humility. So we need to hold these two realities together. Faith, believe in the good news, Jesus says. We see that from Psalm 23. But we also need to remember that we are to repent. The gospel doesn't remove the need for repentance... Actually, the wonderful thing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus is that it provides a way for us to repent. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus reminds us that we can come to him. We can come to God because he has come to us in the Lord Jesus. And this morning we're going to be reminded that because of Jesus, we can come to him, we can tell him everything, and he promises to cleanse us. He promises to cleanse us and forgive us, to restore us and renew us, and to guide us and give us lives of usefulness and purpose. You see, one of the things is that if we've been a Christian for a little while, we can think we almost are able to move beyond the reality of dealing with our sin, or that's what we admitted when we first became a Christian, and that's what others have to deal with. But the reality is this. The question is not, do we sin? The question is, have we repented? We're going to see this morning a spirit of humility, of staying low before God. And when we stay low before God, that's where he can use us. Because repentance is not simply turning from sin. Repentance in the gospel is turning to the Lord Jesus. Repentance is not merely stopping something. It's realising that Jesus wants us to come to him. Come to him with the burden of our sin and know the forgiveness that he has won for us on the cross. 
Just a little bit of background to Psalm 51. Firstly, you can see in what they call the superscription there in your Bibles, that small type before verse 1, that there's a backstory here. David has sinned. He's taken another man's wife. He's got her pregnant, and so he arranges the death of her husband, and then he acts like nothing is wrong. Possibly for over a year, David was in this position trying to live his life pretending like the reality of his sin was nothing. But David goes through this process of coming back to God. And that's what we have here in Psalm 51, this reality of David pouring his anguish and knowing the burden of his sin before God. And these words here are important words. And I think this is true, that these are not just old words. There are words here that we don't quite understand. I think the reason that we don't quite understand these words, I think the reason is, is not because they're old or perhaps even written in another language originally. We don't understand them so well because we don't actually know what's going inside all of us. We don't know what's going on in our own lives before God. And what we, do, what we need is this psalm to show us, to show us the anatomy of what it is to be a human before God with the reality of sin and the reality of guilt. Now, when you read that superscription there about what David did with Bathsheba and the consequences of his act of adultery, we, we can kind of think, well, you know, th- this is the kind of psalm that we reserve for the big things, that's only relevant then, perhaps if I've committed adultery and killed someone. This is my kind of psalm. But Jesus reminds us in a parable where a Pharisee is looking down on another for their sin, totally ignorant of their own. Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like that person. And so we need to remember as we read this psalm, that although it is relevant for those big times in life, this psalm is relevant for everyday life, for the little things that seem to us little but are actually big and the big things that seem big but are actually little. Firstly, I want to look at the reality of sin and the character of God in verses 1 to 3. If you've got a Bible open there, It starts with these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. David, as he starts this psalm, starts with the reality of who God is. David is staking the future of his whole life on the reality of who God is. And we see there in verse 1 that God is gracious, that he actually gives the opposite of what we deserve. We see he's not just gracious, that he's loving. He's got this steadfast, tenacious tenderness of a father to us. He's gracious, he's loving, and he's also merciful or um, compassionate. He's willing to forgive. This is who God is. And this is key in David's mind. David can't move toward God 
if God is only a God of judgment and justice. The reality of God's mercy and of his love and of his compassion allow the space for David who is burdened, who is weighed down by his guilt. And this is how David sees himself. He sees God as gracious, loving and compassionate, but he sees himself as a transgressor. transgressor. There in verse 2, as one who is dirty almost, he asks to be washed, he asks his iniquity to be washed, and he asks his sin to be cleansed. David feels the reality of sin. Sin is a stain. Sin is a weight. And sin is a debt. And here is what the Bible is clear on. Sin is such a harmful evil that it is deeply rooted in the heart of every one of us. And even the best kind of people, someone chosen by God because he was a man after God's own heart, King David, even a person like that is capable of the worst of sins. And so as David comes to God, he is aware of who God is, a God who is merciful, but he is aware of the reality of his own sin. And that's Christianity 101. Forgiving God, reality of sin. But that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem today. It's a problem to think about ourselves this way or to think about a God who condemns us in this way. Many people leave churches because, you know, they don't want Christianity. They don't want a Christianity that makes them feel guilty. They don't want a Christianity that causes them psychological harm. There are people now whose jobs are to help people psychologically, emotionally work through the trauma of feeling guilty because they've been in a church. And people report who leave churches, people report that they only feel liberation and freedom once they leave a church. And for me as a pastor, when I hear those stories and when I see that reality, that grieves me. It grieves me that people are under the impression that Christianity is only about the condemnation of their sin and that their lived experience is one of being crippled by guilt. And yet, as we hear those stories, I I think we, many of us here, often do feel quite crippled by the reality of guilt. And it is a kind of attractive idea. If, If we could have a kind of Christianity that could move us away from guilt, where we could have the grace of God, the love of God, we could have his embrace, but without this oppressive form of paralyzing guilt. Really interesting essay was written a little while ago by a historian called Wilfred Maclay. 
And he wrote this essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And what he observes in this essay is that religion is in retreat, that the prophets of atheism, people like Friedrich Nietzsche, have promised a time. They, they said that, you know, what we need to do is when we get rid of God, we'll also get rid of guilt. And so the world that we have here today is kind of that world. Nietzsche's view of the world, his kind of vision for the human life has come to be. We have got rid of God in a secular world and in our nation. And yet, he's wrong, isn't he? Because as much as we've got rid of God, we haven't got rid of guilt. Maclay says in his essay, he says, you know, we're bombarded by these images of um, charitable organisations, uh, things that we could give to and things that we could do. And he says this, he says, I, I, I never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. See, he says that in our world, our world does make us feel guilty. We could be doing more. But Maclay describes our world as one where we feel the need to be justified. If we live in a world that's making us feel bad, like we could be doing more, we, what do we want to do? We want to feel justified. And people have a sense of guilt. And they have a sense of sin even without God. And he says this, he says, No longer is there a sense that they have lived in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace and forgiveness. There is sin but no formula for redemption. We live in a world that has got rid of God. It hasn't got rid of guilt. We can feel bad for anything. But it's got rid of redemption. And so whether we're Christian or whether we're non-Christian, the reality is we're all dealing with guilt. We're all dealing with guilt. We've rejected God, but we've kept guilt. And this is why Psalm 51 is so important for us to see. Because we can't get away from guilt. We can get away from God, but we can't get away from guilt. And what we're reminded what we're reminded of in the gospel of the Lord Jesus is that we can come to God with our guilt. We can come to him with our heavy burden. And he's the one who offers to blot out our sin. He offers us forgiveness in the face of our guilt. And his forgiveness in the Lord Jesus is so much better than our denial. Because when we come to the Lord Jesus, when we come to him with a heart full of repentance, knowing that he is the one who forgives us, no person is refused. See, often we get confused about what guilt is. Guilt 
is not necessarily what we feel from others, either their condemnation or even the way in which they praise us. You see that in verses 3 and 4. David is able to move towards God because he knows his primary relationship is not with others. It's with God. He says there, verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, the whole problem here. The problem that we've been talking about, this problem of the reality of sin in our lives is dealt with in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But sometimes we as Christians get confused between the difference between repentance and remorse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says godly sorrow leads to deliverance but not regret. But worldly sorrow over sin leads only to death. See, there are two kinds of sorrow for sin. A godly sorrow that leads to a freedom and a deliverance and without regret. And a worldly kind of sorrow that leads to death. See, we have a gospel of forgiveness. And we have a gospel of forgiveness because God has declared us guilty but with that guilt we have the possibility of coming to him to know the freedom and to know that release and David sensed it in God he could see over time the way in which God continued to forgive Israel David was not the first to sin in the nation of Israel time and time again from the very first pages of the Bible, we see God's people rejecting him. We see them caught in surprising and grievous sin. And yet we see God as a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. He says there, have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. David says something there that brings us, I think, to ask the question there in verse 4, what does it mean, against you only have I sinned? Because when it says there in verse 4, against you only have I sinned, what, what about Uriah, who's lying dead on the battlefield? What about poor Bathsheba, ripped away from her husband? What does he mean when he says, only against you have I sinned? Well, David is not denying the fact that he has violated these people. But what he's saying is he's discovered something profound about the nature of sin. He's actually discovered something profound about the nature of his own life. That fundamentally his guilt is not before people. His guilt is before God. And as much as perhaps those around him are willing to condemn him, there is something remarkable about the God of grace and the God of forgiveness. He says there in verse 4, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. 
I think what David's saying there in verse 4 is he's kind of prepared himself before God. He's freed himself from the consequences of what God might do. And he's saying to God, like, if you were to come back to me through Nathan the prophet, whatever you decide, I'm fine with it. I'll take your side against me. You see, David has come to grips with the reality of just how deep his sin is. And he's not in denial. And he's not crippled or paralysed. He's actually realising that there is a God who is willing to forgive him. He's serious about the reality of his sin there in verses 3 to 6. He's lamenting. But he knows something of the character of God. He says there in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David wants to be hidden from his sin. And we know what it cost God to hide David from his sins. We know what it cost God to hide us from our sins. We know what it cost God to answer this prayer in Psalm 51. That when we look at the cross of the Lord Jesus, we see him stretched out. His death was paying for our sin. He turned to his father and he prayed for the first time in his life. Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know why? The Lord Jesus was forsaken. The Lord Jesus prayed this prayer of desperation because God was hiding his face from his son so he could hide his face from our sins. The reality is that God can't look at both. He can't look at the reality of us in our sin, but he's given the Lord Jesus for us. Jesus was punished so that our sins could be blotted out. And God takes us, when we come to realise that reality, he takes us by his spirit to bring to bear that reality, the truth of the cross, what he did for us. And what we do is we, we take that reality and we apply it to our lives. We apply it to the kind of lies that we believe when we're burdened by sin and when we're burdened by guilt, there's no way around guilt, but there is a way to God in the Lord Jesus. And when we see the Lord Jesus and his death for us, we know that we can say in our lives, create in me a clean heart, O God, because I know that my sin is against you. My sin has been against you throughout all my life. And because I finally see what you've done, because I know your forgiveness in the Lord Jesus, I know that I can trust in you and I know that you will make me clean and give me a new nature. You see, this psalm is a great reminder for us when we're burdened, when we're heavy, not to be caught in the reality of our sin, but to be caught in the reality of his forgiveness and the three things that I want us to remind that I want to be remind I want us to be reminded of as we think about this psalm 
Firstly, we need to be reminded to ask God sometimes to break us and to heal us. David prays there in verse 8, let these bones you have crushed rejoice. When God reveals to us the reality of our sin, it's often painful. And David was already a man who was broken by his sin, yet he didn't fully realise it until God sent Nathan the prophet to show him his sin and to break him into the reality of God's forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, wrote this. He said that seeing our weakness and experiencing God's power to save teaches us a heart music which only broken bones can learn. See, there is a closeness to God that we can only realise, we can only know when he has broken us and when he's healed us. Secondly, we can be comforted by the spirit. David prays there in verse 11, take not your spirit from me. I think he's not, in context here, David is referring to the reality of his kingship and he's concerned that he would lose that. But it's a reminder for us that as David grieved over his sin, our grief over our sin is a reminder that his spirit is at work within us. You see, when we ask ourselves the question, when we're caught in the burden of the reality of our sin, how can God love me? Surely I'm not really a Christian. We ought to take comfort from knowing that the very grief that we often experience as we deal with the truth and reality of our sin is God's spirit working in us, causing us to see sin for what it is. And finally, in verses 12 to 15, we're reminded that we can rejoice and proclaim the truth. David is asking God to make him so joyful about his salvation that he can't help but teach others about what he's experienced. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is important, isn't it? This is where we'll finish. It's important because often when we wallow in our sin, we draw back from serving others because we think that we're just not worthy. But here David reminds us and says that it's the joy of forgiveness for sin that should compel us to speak of the good news with our friends, with our family and with our neighbours. Friends, I'm going to ask us to pray a prayer of confession now. And just as we pray this prayer of confession, I want us to be reminded in light of Psalm 51 that our confession before God is not an apology for feeling bad. It's actually agreeing with God about who we really are. Confessing our sin before God is affirming that we are who God says we are. We are dead in our sin. Death is the only reality in which one can receive forgiveness and life and freedom. And it's in that place of death, that reality of knowing that sin leads to death, that the root of life comes. Just as in fertile soil, which is made up of 
the kinds of things that die, so too in that soil of the reality of our sin comes the gospel of grace and mercy, the gospel of life in the Lord Jesus, out of the hopelessness of our sin, out of our worthlessness in our sin. He offers us not what we deserve, judgment and death, but he's offers, he offers us grace and truth for life to come. So let us pray.